0: Hello
1: there, Winnie. Hi, how are you doing?
2: I'm great, how are you? How good to be with you. How's the weather?
1: Well, the weather where I am in Manchester is slightly overcast. Um, It was sunny earlier and then it was really rainy for a little section just at the point at which we were filling a tip um, outside um, our church and there's all these books that got completely wet and can't go to the charity shop now, so there we go.
2: <laughs> well, I'm sitting under a skylight in the bright sunshine in the United States of America.
1: Very envious, very envious. I can't wait till we, we can do this um, on location. Um, that will be a great day for G-race, G-race, G in parentheses, race. Um, race, um, race, um, race. Um to be and to happen. So um, what we're doing today,
2: who we're meeting? That's right. I think we get to meet a friend of yours today. Oh, I'm yes. I'm so
1: excited. So she is Samantha Lindo. Uh, she is so many things. She is someone who challenges and encourages me to think about my impact upon the planet. And so she's a climate activist and willing to put her own freedom at risk She is a beautiful singer and poet um, and she's all over inspiring really and she's got great things to talk about God and race which is uh, what we're about, huh?
2: Right on. I'm really looking forward to meeting her.
0: Is that all right? I can't can't hear it. One,
3: two. One, two. Hello. Hello, can you hear us? Hello, yeah,
1: one sec, start video. Hello there, Samantha.
3: Hello. Azra, why does everybody look cooler
2: than us on video?
3: <laughs> well, you know, I try. I was like, put on some lipstick.
2: <laughs> oh, lipstick, that's the next time, Azra. we're wearing lipstick. Okay,
1: I'm down for that. It's so good to see you, Samantha. I'm so excited about you coming in meeting my
3: friend Winnie. This is awesome. me too. I've been so excited to see you and to chat. And Winnie, I loved your um, your contribution to the book launch, so I've been super excited to meet you too.
2: I loved yours as well. It's so beautiful. Thank, this you.
3: Is great. Thank, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Where are you, Winnie? I'm in New York. Oh, I keep having dreams about New York at dreams the moment. Anyway. Oh, you should come. It's a beautiful yeah. time to be in New York yeah. City. <laughs> anyway.
1: So, curious about your dream, but <laughs> we'll... Uh, I had a dream yesterday, which included a guy called Sam Wells, who's based at St. Martin in the Fields, and a saxophonist, who's an old school friend of mine. (laughs) Um, So uh,
2: we should just stick to the script because this is going to get really strange (laughs) if Sam Wells is in your dreams.
1: (laughs) So, So Samantha, we've already started talking about places, and that's quite key because one of our first questions we like to ask our guests is, what is home for you?
3: Yeah. So well I've been listening to back, back to some of your other conversations and when you asked that to your previous guest I I I felt like it was a bit of a oh, in the gut for me I nearly teared up such a deep emotive question um the image that I go back to in my mind is this you know this summer scene in my grandparents garden I must have been like so young but it was a kind of yearly thing of the a barbecue and the sun's out and there's a swing and a rose garden and it's my grandfather's vicarage and it's this quintessential like English vicarage with his rose garden but also with you know jerk chicken and rice and peas and and, and reggae and salsa and that that influence that you know it's two influences together in this kind of innocent garden I mean the symbolism the metaphors in that are just you know i'm sure that says a lot about what i'm yearning for but also this place this idea of people being gathered and people celebrating so i think you know home is that place where my you know my heritage is is kind of brought together in a very natural way but also it's a place where people are gathered and people are celebrating people are together and i think i try to recreate that all the time basically.
1: That's amazing so tell us a bit about how come your grandfather had jerk chicken and salsa <laughs> and things like that I mean who was your grandfather <laughs> yeah. and yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah I mean he was called Leithland Oscar Lindo, so he was one of the first um, black Anglican vicars um, Uh, came in the 1950s with my my grandmother um she was only young then but my my father was born here when he was doing his curacy in in Canterbury I think um but yeah his he had a very complex identity he was you know of high color in in Jamaica so I suppose there's you know there was a racialized class system which was a hangover from slavery and he saw himself very much as part of the commonwealth and a, a you know a citizen of of the commonwealth and quite anglicized Loved jazz uh cricket you know, wine but also came to the uk and, and was racialized as black and he- held held a complex identity um and i think yeah that complexity has definitely been kind of handed on in its beauty and its complications.
1: So I wonder, when people meet you, are they able to tell that you had a black grandfather?
3: Yeah, interesting question. They're like, where are you from? Um, And it's always like, what do you think? And sometimes it's Israel, (laughs) sometimes it's Italy, sometimes it's Jamaica. I think, yeah, I think it depends and what context I'm in and also what, you know, my hair's doing. So, yes, I think they can tell that I'm not fully white English, but I'm hard to place.
2: Yeah. I'm really struck by how you are so naturally um, doing what the title of this podcast sort of does, putting race in the middle of grace, right? That, that um, kind of shifts the meaning of what grace is and what it's for. Right. And you are a you know, jerk chicken in a garden to me sounds really normal. And in a vicarage garden sounds to me like a welcome. Um, but I can imagine to some sounds like an intrusion and maybe at its best, multiculturalism and kind of interesting and new um, that you're you're like centering home um, in this larger context of of the culture that you are a part of in this really powerfully kind of subversive, but really natural way. Um, so, yeah. I, I, and I found so interesting in a little bit that I've read about you the conversation, that you, uh, a conversation that you had about beginning to think about race in a very particular way when you were in school in uni- in university, I think, um, which I think happens to a lot of us that we're just living our lives, making our way, and then we're in a class where someone it happened to me that someone asked me to interview my mother. That was the assignment, yeah. with a very particular yeah. set of questions and. You know, I'm from a good feminist family and my mother is an immigrant from India. My parents are both immigrants, and it asked a set of questions I had never asked my mother. I had a lot of assumptions about that, frankly, racialized and gendered me in a powerful way, an important way. Um, Can you tell tell us a little bit about that, um, how that worked for you when you were in school?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, so school, like secondary school, I I spent the whole time trying to minimise my difference and kind of, you know, saw my dad doing that a lot because they didn't necessarily have language for the difference because they were lighter. Um, They weren't necessarily part of a black community, but yet they weren't white. So I think it put him in a really difficult position. So I mirrored that, and I was just trying to straighten my hair and be just not aware of, just just kind of iron it out of me. And then, well, a few things. So I went to university in Birmingham. So Birmingham's a place rich in in black culture and and I remember opening up a, a poetry book um, by Linton Quincy Johnson who I saw at the Drum Theater and it a poem being named George Lindo Lindo's my second name I was like what this is like this is a this is partly about me and then you know I went to Uganda in my second year and I was actually taught about colonialism effectively from primary school children from watching a play um, of these children reenacting their history, and it just reflect it just kind of shocked me. How have I got to you know nineteen and I haven't been taught my history, this history, and I think that kind of sparked off. First of all, being, being in Birmingham, stopping straightening my hair and minimising my difference and that for, you know, having the chance to, ex- to claim that and express that. Uh, and also um, to start studying postcolonial theory and look at artists and playwrights from a post-colonial perspective. And I interviewed yes. my grandfather about internalised racism and about his identity And it was just the most fascinating conversation about how, um, I suppose, my generation, because I felt, I suppose, more rooted in uh, the dominant culture, I suppose, I felt I was able to claim my difference much more strongly. And yeah, it was a, a very rich experience alongside working at, um, I worked at the Commonwealth and Empire Museum, which was my first job outside of uni, and it was um, in the break, the Breaking the Change exhibition. So I was seeing artefacts a- a- about how enslaved people were um, registered and described Uh, around their their skin tone like mulatto and all of the different shades and 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 looking at this history um and it was the 200th anniversary of abolition at that time so lots was going on especially in Bristol but talking to my grandfather alongside teaching other people in Bristol in Bristol about this uh history it was so disruptive for me it just it, it 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 completely shaped who I have come to be. Such a powerful
2: testimony to why it's, why it's important to know our history in ways that we can actually imagine being in exactly. it as opposed to told about someone far yeah. away, right? It's, it's so core to our mm. own identity. It's just, it's a beautiful story, mm. thank you.
1: As, as Winnie was saying, you, you embody something of, of these different stories and heritages, which is where actually we want to be. My father's grandfather was Scottish, was white Scottish. And so, you know, when I go to Scotland, there's a sense in which I feel there's something of home there. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some sort of connection and I just love the, the way in which, you know, you hold and embody these different stories and, and heritages. And, and that's really wonderful. I think embodying that shared history, um, enables us to, to have a, a sign of the future.
3: Yeah, exactly. And it, and interestingly, my grandfather's grandfather, grandfather was also white Scottish. That was why he was called Leith, wow. Leithland, which is just outside of Edinburgh. So, yeah and, yeah, and I didn't really claim that either, you know, and going back to Jamaica with him, which I was so grateful that I got the chance to do. It, it showed it kind of allowed me to see his his perspective on his history in a very emotional way we went back to his old house like uh, i suppose um it was in ruins at that point but he was um he was weeping at this history that wasn't there anymore this Jamaica that wasn't there anymore for him and yet it was it, it was a rich thing for him but it's good that jamaica's moved on and post-independence but it was a bittersweet experience for him and i suppose just living that history um alongside him was a really powerful thing as a child as well have you always
2: been a musician did that come early for you
3: um yeah i mean i've always sung i've always sung i remember my my dad's very he loves music, so music's always been around, and I was very influenced by kind of the pop and soul um that was always on on a Saturday morning and reggae and I remember sitting under the table as a little girl and um singing and doing like the wobbly bits and being like, "I can do that I can do that a bit like <laughs> and think and like you know you realize that like, oh, I can do that a bit um <laughs> I can't do the wobbly bit, but <laughs> like the
0: vibrato, nice. like ha,
3: ah! um, and just, just, just claiming they, uh, just loving those epic female vocalists that my dad just loved. But me, myself, as a, as a songwriter, as an artist, came a bit later. It's very much a performer, and that held a very important place in my life. But actually. Um, yeah my journey around myself as an artist and what i'm writing about and what influences and um, jazz and um using my voice as an instrument and improvising and my faith journey and healing all of that kind of swirled together at the same time and i suppose kind of became my music
2: can yeah can, i'm gonna actually ask we're gonna talk about your faith journey but i also want to ask, this is totally off script. Um, it, did you have a sense when you were growing up um, in the community that you came from that there were expectations on who you should be as an adult? Like what kind of adult you should be? And oh, yeah. kind, of, kind of curious about where that where that fits with with the path you've chosen as an artist.
3: Yeah, good question. You know, I, I would be aiming for the things that our society is holding up for us. Like, you know, the holidays, the clothes, and I've really got a new level of understanding, I suppose, for my my dad in this. That maybe when you've felt difference that you haven't been able to claim positively, you want to kind of tick all the boxes that society is telling that society's telling you you need to. And I suppose my journey as an artist is kind of, is going like I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play by those rules. And I think it was it's been very hard for probably my dad, to be honest, to to get alongside that, um, because what he values, what he feels safe in is different to that.
2: And and I would assume that is also part of the story of your faith journey and your journey as an artist.
3: Absolutely. And yet easier for my grandpa to speak into that and say, you know, don't give up and to appreciate jazz like I do. And but I think sometimes it's easier, it's, it's easier just for grandparents to do that than parents.
2: So I, I hear there's a great story about how you and Azariah met. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to hear it.
3: Uh, you, do you want to tell it, Azariah?
1: Yeah, so we encounter one another um, at Lambeth Bridge, and um, which had been made into the Faith Bridge for an Extinction Rebellion gathering get together of the different faiths and I have been invited as one of the folks to come up and gee up the crowd as it were and uh, you know it just felt appropriate after each of the little prayer segments for us to sing a little bit and so yeah that, that's what we did
3: <laughs> and I loved it I was yes who is this man who is this man <laughs> and I think you should do it I think you should do the amens
1: Um, all right so yeah so um, maybe I'll do a round and then maybe you can uh, come in as well and uh, I don't know if it's going to work on Zoom but maybe our wonderful producer Rosie might be able to stitch something together or find a Spotify version of this thing and speak it and pretend it's us okay there we go all right so here we go so this is something I picked up my mum taught me I'd hear it in church as a kid and it was just like this. Amen. 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 Amen.
3: of time there but I was harmonizing
0: in my yeah. own in my
3: own way
1: <laughs> that's amazing yeah oh. so that was um yeah so that that drew your attention didn't it and uh, yeah and we we got in touch
3: well I got in touch and... with you I think I, I I basically just rang you out, out of the blue. And then we just had yeah. this massive conversation that first time, basically became friends. And then yeah. I just kept on because I, I, I felt like your voice was so important to shape the event that I wanted to put on as a response to what we were saying, that that faith bridge um, was so powerful. This, this collaboration between the faiths was so powerful and prophetic. But, you know, it was when you looked out at the people gathered, it was so white. So white. Um Faith Bridge so white. Faith bridge so mm-hmm. white. <laughs> so what what are the implications of that? Um and I felt I felt like I was in a I had a responsibility, I suppose, to lead a reflection on why that is and to yeah, to curate event an event that that reflects on all of the levels of that question. And um we had some such interesting discussions in the lead up to that event climate and color which you kindly spoke at in the most powerful way that
1: was that was an amazing thing to be part of and then it was great to hear you speak when there was a book launch where you described something that happened on another bridge a little bit before um we had met on the lambeth bridge yeah can you tell us a little bit about the waterloo bridge incident?
3: yeah so that was on easter day that this few months before and um, this was what I wrote my single, Lips, about. So it was the experience of arrest, actually, and, and being part of um, this civil disobedience. And so many strands came together for me in that moment because um, a woman who was uh, indigenous to the Amazon was, was speaking and uh, singing and i felt like it was like a spiritual moment a breaking through powerful moment and she was talking about how when they march when they gather to to resist the destruction of their home which you know isn't just their home the amazon is the lungs of the earth and we know that it is keeping things globally taking over so it's not just about their home it's about the vulnerability of us all that they're faced with the military not just a few policemen and I felt so um not convicted but I felt in my spirit that I wanted to sit and stand in solidarity with this woman this particularly this woman as as a person, as a story as an individual narrative and I looked around and there was just a sea of women doing the same and I suppose using the privilege that we might have as women, as as a lot of them white women as the suffragettes were there were black women as well but you know the, the privilege that comes with whiteness means that you have a capital in that system and I feel like Using that privilege in that way was all of the things that I needed to do in that moment, and that was what led up to an arrest, <laughs> basically. And it was on Easter Day, yeah. and it felt really symbolic, really powerful, integrated with my faith.
1: And what was it like um, when it came to the trial, and you know, and the the court moment, and what you had to uh, to say, and yeah, how you prepared yourself
3: equally as equally as powerful, one of those again, curtain down, curtain ripped open moments. I pleaded guilty because um yeah I didn't have capacity to fight that. But also that meant that you definitely get your your statement read in the court. Um and I wrote this statement that, you know, as a person of faith, as a person who would love to bring children into the world, as a person who is called to to speak and stand up for the most vulnerable, um, this, yeah, this was my duty. And having apologised for using up police resources, apologised for any a, any resources that were taken away from vulnerable people, you know, I got to proclaim that truth and the judge was clearly moved. He kind of tripped over his words a bit and was like, oh, well, um, thank you, uh, Miss Lindo. Very well put <laughs> and and then, you know, there was big applause and I, like floated out of the courtroom my legs like jelly, but felt like actually speaking to power, literally, was the path that my fa- that my faith had led me on.
2: So powerful. What what were you actually charged with? What what did you plead guilty to?
3: Um, to um it was a section fourteen, so it was uh, the whole the protest was illegal a section 14 had been placed on it and I was asked to move and I didn't so it was kind of not listening to uh, a section 14 and the penalty was like £180 and obviously but the thing is it's on my it had been on my um, like record so I had the job I've got now I had to kind of say my statement five times but each time I was like and you know I would do it again I'm not going to do it again right now but I would do it again. So, in a way, in a in a way, I've been saying, you know, I've been making that statement again and again and again. So it's not just that moment; it's how that ripples out.
1: So, as an artist, you, you captured this, didn't you? S- yeah. Some of these moments, and I'd love to hear um, your artist impression of, <laughs> of 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 that moment, if you. Happy to yeah, share well, of
3: you. course, all yes. of your lovely listeners can, of course, go to Spotify right now and listen to the full track.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, the words are... Um, <laughs> we said no with our bodies. We said no with our heads. We said no with our lips as we painted them red. Just for a bit of
3: context, um, the reason why there was a cheeky story because when we were being warned um so you get you know things read out to you this girl next to me um I, I we just didn't know what to do and I just started putting on uh red lipstick and I've actually got red lipstick on now but that it was this is this cheek this, this like cheeky moment of quite a feminine resistance and um and then that actually came up in the um in the police report in the court and it got read out and then uh, the women just started putting on red lipstick and the whole of the court like just burst out laughing and I was like this I was like this naughty girl that was like you know like in class when you're like do something quite funny and everyone's laughing you're being told off but you're like that was quite good but yeah and it was just that funny moment it wasn't rude it was cheeky it was it was it was kind of this kind of non-violence, this cheeky, playful non-violence. Um, and so that was where the moment lips came from.
1: Winnie, I'm wondering, when have you been in situations where there's been a level of charge to them? So I know you've spoken about um, Charlottesville, you know, um, maybe, you know, that story or, or something similar where there's been a conviction, conscience involved uh, that's, that's led to you taking you know what would seem to be a risk to others
2: yeah so one i haven't been arrested in a long time um yeah. it's been a really long time um but uh but i did go to to charlotte so charlottesville is a city in, in virginia so in the american yeah. south um and a few years ago i remember in the early summer um getting an email from a colleague in a church there that um that the clan had been there and as troubled as our country is we're not a, we were not a place frankly um, I did not grow up in a place where the Klan marched, where the Ku Klux Klan marched, but it was happening, and they were coming back, and this was during the last presidency, and they were going to come back in August. Um, and she had asked, they were going to do a service, and so she asked if, a number of us if we could come, and I could. And I remember thinking, the only thing, the reason I went is I could, and of course no one else can. It's August, and it's vacation, and it would be difficult, um, it's difficult to get away. So I thought I was going to a service in her church um and there would be a horrible rally outside and we would just be there for solidarity and support um and it had been a time in our country of a lot of actions like that we had gone to Standing Rock it had been different parts of the country where just showing up and being in solidarity with people struggling was important and it was a way to bring some media attention so I thought I was doing something like that or even smaller but of course this turned into a huge Klan rally people came from all over the country um the remember the the president saying later that there were good people on all sides, but it was a Klan rally. They shut down Charlottesville. The University of Virginia is there, which is a very important research university here, but also kind of attributed to Jefferson and this heritage of of whiteness and white supremacy in this country really conflicted. Um, And it was, you know, it was the, the rally that was, you know, people called me from India that they had seen it, like guys with tiki torches in khaki pants and polo shirts and Um, And they walked around the church, I remember like standing with some colleagues ready, like we wanted to go outside and stand on that porch and tell them to go home. Like, you know, they're young enough to be our children, Um, but they terrorized that community. Um, And as you're saying, there's something about being right at the center and claiming, you know, for me, the privilege of being an American and demanding that space that we, you know, we weren't going to run and that we're here. Um, and that for a generation for whom that kind of action is terrifying because they remember the violence attached to that, that we are not formed in those ways and we can stand with them and stand up. I, I find in moments like that, that I remember exactly who I am. Exactly. You know? Yeah. To, to connect to that. Tell, tell me about your your faith story and your faith journey.
3: Um, Goodness. You know, I think I, I reached a point of really not knowing who I was or where home was quite early so I'd gone to university and my parents had both moved away from where I grew up my grandpa had then moved down south and parents remarrying and and having to deal with a lot of things that had happened like um in your yeah early 20s I think things come up that you just haven't had capacity to face so I think it came from a calling out, really, a calling out quite early on for intimacy, for home, for nurture, for the love, the big, with the love with a capital L, which I could sense. And I prayed, I didn't even know, I didn't even know what, you know, who God was or what what that was. But as a child, I had just prayed. I'd, you know, I'd snuck off on school trips and put 20 cents in a, you know in a church in France and prayed for my family to be okay and when my sisters was really ill growing up prayed for her like desperately I remember praying in the back of a car that she'd be okay she was really ill um so it's been a, a natural human instinct for as long as I can remember and then I suppose it was putting form and language around that and and receiving um yeah receiving some specific relationships around around christ i suppose at that point and um also a heritage my heritage you know my my grandfather gave me has given me an amazing heritage so liberal so open i remember going on a, a silent retreat it was actually a yoga retreat when i was at uni and he was like oh good good like he was so open and god as ground of being and saw the scriptures as literature poetry uh we talked about interpretation and discernment and uh, you know he, he and that was early on in my faith journey and it was later on in his life so we had this passing where i kind of absorbed this wisdom um and and kind of felt like when he died it was the birth of my faith journey in a way like the, to take this baton and i received a life in me a new life and I was like, if this has given me that, if that death has given me this much life, then that's what resurrection is on a grand scale. And I really, I, I get that, that pattern of the universe that is shown in, in Jesus. And I think, yeah, it, it held together so many of my needs for community, for justice, for for loads of things, even though I really struggle with the church as an institution and there's so much of it I'm prophetically railing against, yet there's this tension that because there's there's such goodness in it, you know? That's an old fashioned testimony, I believe. Wonderful. <laughs> Is <it>? Thank you.
0: <laughs>
3: I just I just wheel them out, you know. I think I just met Jesus. And interesting, you know, your what you were talking about before, Winnie, about um that moment when you felt fully yourself holding that ground against that old story of white supremacy that was re-emerging. That was, um, you know, that was what my last single was exactly about.
1: So uh, last year, May, there was the um, murder of George Floyd. um, At point of recording recently, um, Derek Chauvin's been convicted. uh, But there's been this whole arc and resurgence of Black Lives Matter um, how did uh, what was going on there and the reactions of things you know so you're in this I said before you came on you're in the southwest of England in Bristol uh, so there was a whole uh, Colston statue and everything you know did you get caught up in any of that activity and energy and what did that lead to. Yeah.
3: Mm, Yeah good question I mean last year for Bristol was just epic we had like Greta in February and then there was like Black Lives Matter and the statue Uh, it just yeah it felt like actually as a city it was really poignant that these things were happening in Bristol and I think for me I you know, it was locked down as well, so wasn't gigging, but was writing, and I wrote this song, and it's called "Lights Go Out." The, the chorus is um, "Frozen still, scared to give it up. One more sip from the silver cup, one more breath. Now the time is up. We'll find our
0: freedom underneath it all." Today, the lights go out. No question, and no doubt. Rises to the surface. What are you going to do? Look into the darkness in you and pull out all the weeds, taking roots on their seas. Inevitably, everyone can see privilege means no equality. You know it didn't happen naturally. So, what are you to do but give it up?
3: idea of this like 400 year story especially in Bristol especially in Bristol this if we're we're kind of mapping back through its merchant histories and its links with slavery and how the city was built this 400 year dominant story crumbling but also this idea of frozen, still scared to give it up, like you were saying, Winnie, about the, the the clan coming back. About you know we saw we saw in in January in the in the storming of the U.S. Capitol this this last grasp. And I suppose I was trying to articulate this last grasp, this fearful grasp uh, for power, uh, and the end, the ending that the crumbling of this story. Um, so I think I was trying to do all of those things in that song and, and also just make it fun and hopeful.
2: Yeah so for those of us in the US, um, you know one of the ways that we see the story of slavery, the history of slavery is the descendants of enslaved people. But even then we struggle to interpret, because we're not often taught that history well, all of the implications right. Um, and the 1619 project here has helped us to see that that our whole culture is formed by slavery, everything, right. Um, but um, I would think it's in some ways even more opaque um, in the UK because um, of your own history. So can you tell us about that statue and, and, you know, what is that history that you're talking about?
3: Well, it was a statue of um, Colston. So he was a, uh, I suppose, a merchant, a merchant venturer who, um, you know, made an, an astonishing amount from... The transatlantic slave trade, but also I suppose was a um uh, you know a philanthropist to some extent so it's like buildings the main cultural venue is now called Bristol Beacon but it was called Colston Hall and there's Colston School and there's Colston Street and there's this statue um so that it, it shows how it's in the fabric of the city literally the structural the architectural structure of the city and you know that trade not it supported auxiliary um industries and i suppose like you know the the region's economic development is totally intertwined with that and yet it's like how do we see that history and own it but I suppose the the statue is like that. Is statues are what you celebrate, what you hold up as an ideal, what you revere, and that moment of it coming down, I suppose, was a moment of saying, no, that's not what we revere. That is the history. That's part of it, but that's not what we're holding up as the good and the proper. And I suppose it's been a process of. The city reflecting on that, which is you know, which has happened for a, which has been happening for a long time. But you know, that's the crumbling, the statue coming down, the 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 end of um, that being held up as the the, the pinnacle. Well, right now, and I think that's right. And, and
2: theologically, I mean, it's how we think about what sin is. Right? We talk about sin yeah. and grace. Yes. Is that it's so enmeshed in all the parts of yeah. us in our society. And we, and it causes us to create idols, right? False gods. Mm -hmm, And when mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. poke at those or tear, it it is, it Mm. utterly undoes who we are um, so that Uh. we can be remade, right? It's a profound kind of theological idea being played out, right, around us.
3: Yeah, so that we can be remade. And I suppose the, again, the discussion of what goes in the statues place. I was talking to my friend Alice the other day and she'd written something saying, nothing at the moment, nothing, let's not rush. Let's not rush. Let's, you know, uh, Jesus died. There was nothing for that. It was around Easter and that Saturday. Let's let the space be the space um, and let out of our work for justice in the city, out of our work for equality, let our next statue arise out of that.
0: Today, the silence sounds. History turns back around You know it wasn't earth So we unpick and we
1: Uh, There's so much in that, um, how so many people are so afraid to relinquish what is because they're afraid of what appears to be a vacuum, appears to be emptiness, appears to be empty space, but we can't hold the two realities at once. Well,
3: that's the Saturday thing, isn't it? The emptiness, the, 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 the empty plaque, the death. That is scary for humans, but we have, you know, a way has been made. <laughs> there is a way out of that.
2: I'm so, I'm so struck in this time that we, at least here, we haven't had communion, um, you know, since last March. Some of, you know, I'm a priest, so I have, you know, a, a little bit on my own, but we, we don't, right? Like, we don't gather as a community. And there, literally, I look at a silver cup once a week that I cannot offer to anyone and that I don't receive um, because we're not gathered. And You talk about this time of waiting, you know, that 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 work of redemption and salvation and resurrection has been done and will come again. Um, But it does feel like we're in this in between time where it's not it's
3: not done yet. Exactly. And I think we're on that on a kind of global level. And just something I do believe is that on the other side of that process, we all find freedom. I think we'll find our freedom. Underneath it all, we're all of freedom. It's not about just the people that've been oppressed. It's it's the people that have been oppressors, or not even direct oppressive, but have benefited from privilege. Um, yeah, it's it's everyone. Yeah, privilege isn't freedom. No, yeah, it's exactly.
0: Just a gilded exactly. cage. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for um, uh, for being with us. Oh, it's just been amazing thank you samantha thank you winnie thank you rosie
2: yeah i'm off to get my red lipstick wearing it
3: <laughs> thanks winnie i might if if my dreams come true i might be over to new york when um when i can yeah
2: please yeah please do let me know if you're here
3: on oh, no, a on a ship i want to kind of sail at some point point. and as I, write, I hope i will see you in That'd person at some point so,
0: <laughs> thank you thank you Bye-bye. Bye bye
2: Samantha Lindo was talking to Azariah France-Williams and Winnie Bargeese. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. You can find more episodes at heartedge.org or from wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a review, subscribe and share Grace with
0: your friends.